This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hello, and welcome to part two of our episode on the king, the father of rock and roll, the legend that is Elvis Presley. Now, if you haven't heard part one yet, what are you doing? Go back, don't miss it. Get this, it's called Elvis Presley, part one. Easy. Enjoy. <laughs> Casey, what do we think about Comeback Elvis? So the late 60s Elvis, when he has borrowed a little bit of Jim Morrison's look and extended it, not just a leather pant, but a leather jumpsuit. If I were to give you the choice, Katie, between hanging out with 1957, just pre-army Elvis, or leather jumpsuit Elvis, late 60s, which Elvis are you going for? Well, my libido might be going for uh, the leather (laughs) upholstered Elvis, but my girlish demureness and modesty leads me towards the more gentlemanly and slightly more spiritually pure Elvis of the late 50s. But I think that, wouldn't you say that Jim Morrison stole Elvis, comeback Elvis's look rather oh, than the other way around? That's a good point. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But there's no doubt that comeback Elvis was just a, you know, went down easy. I don't know, Sally. I mean, do you think that he decided to like refang himself after being considered perhaps defanged after doing all of those cheesy movies like maybe he thought I'm letting the animal out of the cage I think that he knew everything was on the line with that 68 comeback special everything because again hindsight's 2020 and we now know that Vegas happens but he doesn't know that Vegas is going to happen sure He doesn't know. And also so clever to commandeer television once again. So this is a big television special where everything is beautifully choreographed and staged and paced. So it's totally uh, within his control. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, his artistic expression is there. You know, the perfect wardrobe is there. His body looks great. You know, it's all happening. And, And he was very nervous about it without question. He didn't know. You know, it, it, again, it was one of it was the most watched mm. show, right? Just like it had been in the 50s. It was a huge hit, but he didn't know that that would be the case. There was a lot of nerves about it. And I have to say, there are only a few times that he creatively goes against the business advice of the colonel. Oh. And this, the 68 comeback special was one of those times. It was intended to be a Christmas show, kind of like a Bob Hope, Perry Cuomo oh, Christ, Christmas show. Yeah. And if it had been, if it had been one of those Christmas shows, in my opinion, Vegas never would have happened. There's no leather in a Christmas show. Yeah. <laughs> well, not if no. you do Christmas no. wrong. <laughs> uh, but that's why he sings Blue Christmas. Oh, that's why he sings Blue Christmas in that, in that one set, just to appease the colonel and say, well, there is a Christmas song. <laughs> <in it." laughs> so, Katie, I've put a leather clad Elvis into your mind. I'm afraid there is um, a payback for that, which is to put a morbidly obese Elvis in your head. (laughs) Let's talk about, Sally, how he gets quite as big as he gets so quickly. Yeah, a lot of that is is grossly exaggerated as well. You know, there was a show on here the other day and quoted him as being 350 pounds, and that is just not true. I doubt Elvis was ever 250, let alone over 250. Um, A lot of what Elvis had it was not weight gain. A lot of it was bloating. You know, in my book, and this is where I can't help but talk about that and all of the health information that I uncovered because it is correlated to his weight gain. Uh, but by the time Elvis passes in 1977, he has disease or disorder in nine of the 11 systems of the body. 
And at least five of those were present prior to fame because so much of his illness and so much of his weight going up and down um, is attributed or often written off as the end result of the prescription medication use, right? Which I know is coming from our conversation of 1970s Elvis. Um, but the truth is, is that he was dealing with a lot of ailments long before you can physically see them showing up. He also cleverly, I think, uh, incorporates a different costume into his look, which is the jumpsuit, which is very forgiving or, or perhaps not forgiving so much as accommodating uh, <laughs> the various bloatings. But um, he is somebody who, I mean, we sort of mock jumpsuits now, but at the time, the Osmond brothers went to the same jumpsuit tailor. The Jackson Five went to the same jumpsuit tailor. I mean, he was uh, an innovator in stagecraft. Yeah, and it's really it's too bad we make fun of those jumpsuits because we don't make fun of the sideburns, right? We don't make fun of the sideburns of 1956. That's still iconic. And I think the jumpsuits are just as different, right? Just sure. as from that decade, representative of the decade. Uh, but yeah, the jumpsuits do do appear and they were not uh, initially designed to accommodate his change in appearance, but they were designed to accommodate his stage moves. Because he was really into karate, as you know. Yeah. You know, if you watch uh, Elvis the way it is, which was 1971, he is so active and he just commands the entire stage. And if you compare that to Aloha, the Aloha special, which was 73, and he mostly just stands there. I mean, that that's a change in his health and some of the health issues that he's dealing with is reflective in the difference between those two performances. Uh, but that was the initial reason for the jumpsuit was to allow for that movement. I've also found myself wondering, Katie, if some of the karate moves were a reflection of the fact that Priscilla, his wife, ultimately ran off with their karate instructor and whether it was some sort of subliminal whoosh in the face of his former instructor. So he's just sort of acting out the dance-off fight-off that yeah. he would have uh, after uh, being cuckolded. After the literal kick in the teeth. Of having a karate Elvis, instructor run away with your wife. Elvis first started karate in the army, so there was no correlation there. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and in 69, in, when he first goes to Vegas, the, the karate is obviously there in his stage okay. performance. So long before all of that happened with Priscilla. Well, you know, that's that's pretty cool that he's, you know, that's kind of a almost a cliche for um, a pop music artist or some sort of entertainer that they take on some sort of Eastern mysticism to give them <laughs> Some depth, so he's quite an innovator there as well. If in the fifties he was adopting karate, yeah, he was one of the first, one of the first to you know really embrace it and bring it to the states. Yeah, let's talk about something slightly less mystic, Katie, and that <laughs> oh, no. is the Fool's Gold. Oh God, Fool's Gold, um, not another eighties uh, music reference for myself referencing the Stone Roses, but a quite remarkable foodstuff. It's a whole loaf of bread. It's a whole jar of peanut butter. Mm -hmm. It's a whole jar of grape jelly. Yum. And it is a pound of bacon. Don't forget the banana. I said banana as well. Yeah. Yeah, you need your protein and your starch and your sugar. Yeah, so this was a, a, a delightful little uh, smorgasbord of a snack for Mr. Presley. Is this right, Sally? Well, it was a sandwich that he enjoyed from Denver, but he did not eat it by himself. Oh, um, come on. <laughs> Sally. Here's the thing. I know I hate to be the myth buster on Elvis because so much of this stuff is like so much of what a lot of people know about Elvis is just not true. 
you know i always say elvis is elvis is as recognizable around the world as coca-cola and mickey mouse by just his image and his first name yeah yeah he was a real person and you know unfortunately all this stuff just kind of gets attached to him and and that was a myth that we actually solved or busted i suppose not too long ago uh ron strauss again pilot of the lisa marie has a logbook and every flight that he flew with elvis has it in his logbook and what they did or where they went and the fool's gold uh sandwich was on a trip it wasn't he didn't just fire up the lisa marie to go to denver to get the sandwich <laughs> as everybody likes to say he was hungry and wanted to go get this sandwich uh they were actually returning lisa marie to her mother you know because they had shared custody by that point and they were flying her back to california from memphis and they wanted to stop there and get this sandwich because it was her birthday and these sandwiches were brought onto the airplane as it sat on the runway or the tarmac and they were cut up among you know a dozen people and even ron the coal pilot got a piece of it oh, okay <laughs> so so you can understand how that story changed over sure. time from Elvis, this glutton eating a, you know, a pound of bacon uh, on the sandwich with a jar of peanut butter all by himself to getting these special sandwiches to have a birthday celebration with his daughter. And that is how a rock and roll star loses his humanity. <laughs> so if people listen to this, Sally, want to make their own fool's gold, I just want to be clear on what it looks like. Because in my head, Katie, it was like a loaf of bread. That you cut when one end off and then hollowed it out and then just shoved everything else in. <laughs> like, like, like a Christmas turkey yeah. filled with the awful. But it's just sliced bread, is it? With all the stuff piled on top. Yeah, I think you can see it being made on YouTube. I believe I've watched oh, okay. a video of that before. <laughs> but they do. They hollow it out and just load it all on there. And it's a whole French loaf of bread. Okay, so uh, let's talk about... Well, thanks for ruining our uh, pleasure at uh, I know. at our belief in fake news. But actually, it's just as well because you are giving Elvis back his humanity. And everybody deserves that. So there is a story that Tom just can't stop talking about, <laughs> which is what when Elvis met President Nixon. Uh, can you tell us, can you put us in the room in the Oval Office, uh, Sally, with Elvis and Richard Nixon? Oh, I wish we could have been there, huh? Yeah. So, so yeah, Elvis just gets a whim that he wants to meet the president. He wants to talk to him about the drug culture, you know, of, of 1960s America. And he flies to Washington, D.C., literally walks up to the guard at the White House, gives him a letter and says, I want to meet the president and uh, goes back to his hotel room waiting for a call. And of course, we now know behind the scenes, Richard Nixon was like, I don't want to meet Elvis Presley, you know, but his daughter was a big fan. So he's like, OK, I'll meet him. And and but wasn't real happy about it. He was kind of a disgruntled guy anyway. And sure. And then Elvis comes in and they totally hit it off. Just like Elvis could charm anyone, he charmed Richard Nixon. <laughs> so so back up a minute, though. He wants to discuss the drug culture as a uh, advocate of it, as a aficionado. Spectacular fan. Because we know he was. Because uh, And yet, I think he was like playing both sides of that game. He, he was applying to get a federal narcotics officer badge from Nixon. Is that what the, the grift was? Yeah, and there's again, there's there's a discussion to be have about had about that too. You know, maybe he he wanted to be able to have that badge so that he could tour um, and have his 
doctor with him and all of the pills and all of that, you know, uh, but he was a great supporter of law enforcement. He collected badges from all over the country. There are still a number of Presleys that are in law enforcement, even in Tupelo and in Mississippi. Huh. Like it is something that he respected, kind of like his patriotic roots to the military. You know, he had a great respect for law enforcement. He was friends with police officers who provided the security for him around the country and knew them by their first name. Um, having said that, yeah, Elvis does have a problem with prescription medication, and I don't want to sugarcoat that. It is absolutely true. It becomes a problem. But he was also a very ill man, and there are a number of those medications that he does take for a reason, which is what my book explores. And, and I know that's hard for people because I am asking people to think about Elvis in a different way than they've been told to think about him for decades. But a large part of what he takes, he is really trying to continue being Elvis Presley through a number of health ailments. Katie, this reminds me very much of the clip that we have shared in recent days from the film The Commitments, directed by Alan Parker from about 1991. This clip, which is on YouTube, um, shows Jimmy Rabbit's father, who is an absolute Elvis obsessive. He's got the quiff, he's got the sideburns, he's got two pictures on the wall, he's got Pope John Paul II, and above him he has Elvis Presley. And he's talking to Joey the Lips Fagan, who has who's a trumpeter who has met Elvis. And he asks him at the end, no. Did you ever in all your time in Graceland ever see Elvis touch drugs? And Joey Ellipse Fagan says, never, brother. And he's so happy that Elvis apparently didn't take drugs. But this medical prescriptions that he had, right, by the end of his days, Katie, I've got 14 different drugs written down here that apparently he was on. Sally, you can put straight on this. There are so many, Katie. I mean, I don't know how to pronounce half of them. Uh, Dilaudid, Percodan... Placidil, Dexedrine, Bifetamine, Tuinol, Desbutol, Escatrol, Amobarbital, Quaaludes, Carbitrol, Seconol, Methadone and Ritalin. I would describe those as puppy uppers and doggy downers. But Sally would know. I mean, there's obviously some speed in there and there's obviously some like uh, parachute drugs to like take them down after a, a hard night entertaining the fans. Yes, I, I think the, the place to start that conversation is to ask yourself if you've ever thought about why did Elvis turn to prescription medication in the first place? You know, I think from a journalistic standpoint, and that's the, you know, as a historian and a journalist, that's how I approach Elvis, again, as a historical figure. Why did he turn to prescription medication in the first place? That question has never been asked before, and it has never been answered. He is a lifelong insomniac. That is his first ailment that he turns to prescription medication for. And he does that in the 1950s, you know, in 56, 57, before he goes into the army. And then I really do believe that, and my book explains that, you know, Elvis probably suffered from something like ADHD because he did have childhood insomnia and there's only a certain number of things that will cause that. So the dexedrine actually helped him in a lot of ways because mm. dexedrine is prescribed even today for something like ADHD. So he initially turns to this medication to solve real problems and it works. It helps a lot of his real ailments. And, you know, when we talk about all the pain medication, he really did have a very serious colon problem, which we now know uh, he had since birth. There is testimony from relatives saying that he had severe issues and Gladys had severe issues with baby Elvis and toddler Elvis uh, with constipation and colon trouble. So these were things that he dealt with his whole life. Even in 1971, when you're watching the way it is and you're seeing all those moves, he writes his TCB oath. And one of the things he puts in there is freedom from constipation. So ah. the slogan we can all get behind. <laughs> and you know what it's like to be uncomfortable for a day or two. So imagine 20 years 
30 years of dealing with that type of issue and having it be genetic in nature, having no one quite understand that. And yes, the medication he took would have further slowed down his digestive system, but he had um, a genetic issue with that Mm. from birth. And a lot of what he is taking is allowing himself to continue being Elvis Presley. And again, it goes back to the poverty and the fact that he can't stop being Elvis Presley because he's providing for all of these people. Sure. And he's, uh, I mean, there's other issues as well, blood pressure, Yes. there's liver damage, glaucoma. Yes. yes. Um, and this is in a time in the 70s where I guess, number one, information isn't out there. It's not like, you know, he can just get on the internet and like start making some inquiries. And also sure. it's considered very, very private. So it's not even anything that you would necessarily want to discuss with other people. It was very private and not just in the 70s, but even in the 50s when his mother is sick. And a lot of what was wrong with her was also wrong with Elvis. You know, what my research uncovered is that his maternal grandparents were first cousins. So that doubling of the gene pool created a lot of issue for Gladys and her siblings. You know, Gladys dies at 46. She has another brother who dies at 46, a brother who dies at 48. Uh, a brother who dies in his early 50s, and then Elvis dies at 42, and there's reasons for all of this. And I know that's not the you know the purpose of our discussion today, but there is a big story you know behind that, and a lot of things that make all of Elvis's story make more sense. So he is dealing, you know, yeah. and, and immune, you mentioned all the things that he had wrong with him. He also had an immune system disorder called hypogammaglobulinemia, which means that he could not fight infection. And when he is routinely sick and he's canceling shows because of fever and everybody's saying it's just the drugs, again, two things are true at the same time. He is he does right. have a problem with prescription medication, but he also has this immune system disorder. And you know, even today, it can take years to get those diagnosed. I need a few moments to regroup and ponder this information. So uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your counselor. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your counselor in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. It's convenient. It's professional and it's affordable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com forward slash Billy. The end when it comes, Sally, is not dignified for a man known as the king he is found face down on the floor of the toilet he's wearing gold pajama bottoms there around his ankles there's a big patch of vomit on the carpet and the detail which always strikes me is that so he's at home at graceland and graceland isn't empty i mean his daughter lisa marie is there is his daddy's he calls him vernon his girlfriend there's a nurse there's an aunt there's some of the memphis mafia it's no way for a king to go yeah and i think it's you know one of the reasons i wanted to do my research is i think it's most unfortunate that young people especially only know the location of elvis's death the room in the house that he died in and when we think about his legacy and his contributions you know he deserves so much more than that um so it is it's it's most unfortunate that he passed in the bathroom and yeah there were other people there at the time but you have to remember that he passed during the hours of the day that he was thought to have been sleeping so it wouldn't have been unusual to not see him you know that kind of thing if 
even though there were a lot of people in the house. I remember um, where I was when Elvis died, you know, as a kid in high school. It was such a shock because, you know, when you're a kid and somebody who is a pop culture icon, when somebody of that stature goes, it's just incredible because you think, well, they're there forever. You know, Elvis had always been there my entire life. And I just assumed he was immortal. And I think there was, uh, that was a feeling that sort of never went away. It didn't go away because there's always rumors of Elvis sightings. I think it was probably one of those early conspiracy theories that people keep thinking that they're seeing Elvis down at the donut shop or whatever. But what was the, the general reaction, Sally, when Elvis died? Yeah, it was absolute shock. He was only 42. It was very unexpected. Uh, no one knew about the prescription medication problem. No one knew about his health issues. You know, no one knew any of that was going on. Yes, they could visibly see that he was getting older and and changing. Um, but I, I think it was a big surprise to the country, and it was it was devastating. And still, it's it's going to be 45 years in August, and and it's amazing how popular and that popular is not even the right word you know it's just amazing how known he still is and how much a part of our culture universally worldwide and our our society that he really still is it's always catches me you know me and the kids we're always we listen to a lot of different types of music and even the new stuff it's just fascinating how often an elvis some connection to elvis will appear in a song lyric you know so he's he's everywhere still without question and what I think really strikes me is when I was in Memphis uh, for Elvis week. So on August 15th, the eve of his death, they always have a candlelight vigil. And this was a small year because of COVID and the international community couldn't come. And there was still at least 10,000 people there. You know, like who, who else do they do that for? Is it true, Sally, that when he died, when Elvis dies, that Colonel Tom Parker, after all these years, making millions upon millions of dollars off Elvis, refers to the death of his client as a smart career move. That's pretty cold. I have not heard that before. <laughs> I I have not heard of him saying that before. Um, you know, the colonel could be very calculating without question. He cared about Elvis too. I don't doubt that, even if he had a funny way of showing how he cared at times. Um, I, I have not heard him say something as callous as that. It is callous, but there is a grain of truth to it because had Elvis continued into middle age the way that he was going, maybe he wouldn't be the icon. There's something about a tragically early death that does preserve someone, Katie, in aspect for perpetuity. We don't see them getting even older and even bigger and, dare we say it, maybe even losing that beautiful hair. Very true, and that's a debate that's always fun to have and it always leads nowhere, right? Because there is no answer to that question. We'll never know. Like what would have happened if Elvis didn't die? There's just all sorts of speculation. I think, you know, his career would have taken the same trajectory as a Frank Sinatra, because really that's the only other person that equates to Elvis, in my opinion, is Sinatra. And he didn't die young and he will be remembered forever. And he did those main event concerts and some of those big, you know, out of retirement comeback concerts. And I think that's what Elvis would have done as well. But I always have that conversation kind of in correlation to James Dean, because James Dean was around for a very short period of time, only made three movies. Would he be remembered if he hadn't died in that Porsche on that day? Yeah, I'm not 
sure that he would. I don't know. So I don't know about that. James Dean, though. Anyway, let's not get into James Dean. We just did a whole episode on James Dean. We so did. That's that's fresh, fresh in my head. Yeah, you know, you can compare Elvis to him or Marilyn, sure. like any of these people. Like, why do they live on? And is part of that the fact that they died young? And absolutely, that is a part of. I think it's not only a part of. Uh, it's a part of the mystique, right? It's 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 the sure. fact that we can keep asking these questions and keep having the conversations about them and never really have a real answer. I just want to also touch on the TCB thing because we haven't really gotten into that. And you mentioned the TCB oath, taking care of business. And was that the, the motto and or the name of his crew of guys, Memphis Mafia? It, it became the motto, TCB. You know, again, there some people tell different stories, but it was Elvis and Priscilla who came up with it. And it just ended up being everywhere. I mean, it's even on his tombstone now. It's on the airplane you know, wing of the Lisa Marie, and he had necklaces made for everyone in his group. And then it, it grew into TLC. So all the guys would get a, a TCB necklace taking care of business. And all the, the women in the group would get a TLC necklace, which was tender, loving care. Oh, no, I would really be advocating for a TCB necklace if I were in his crew. Because I don't want tender, loving care. I want to be taking care of business, Sally. <laughs> so it really was what they did. I mean, we can look at Elvis and have all these assumptions, but the real truth is that they all worked really hard. Elvis worked really hard at being Elvis Presley. Yeah. He toured more than most people. You know, in Vegas, he was doing two shows a day. Uh, they were a very hardworking group of people. And I think we forget that sometimes with all the sensationalism that's on top of it. And TCB was part of that, taking care of business. Well, Sally, you have very much taken care of business for Katie and me today. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Sally's book, if you want to read more, is called Elvis Presley, Destined to Die Young. Katie, can you thank Sally, please, in the only way we could possibly thank her after an Elvis episode? Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's been so great to talk to you. And I, I just wanted to add that the book in England is available at strictlyelvis.net. It'll save on that international shipping. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And one thing that I was thinking about, Tom, is it seems that Elvis is the archetype of the beloved star who disintegrates before our very eyes, kind of like a Judy Garland. But unlike Judy Garland, whose obvious vulnerability made her even more beloved to her super fans, it seems like Elvis's vulnerability, the weight gain, the, you know, the wobbliness of his singing prowess as he got further into the 1970s seemed to make him the butt of jokes. And I wonder what the difference was. Like, why do you think that people were scoffing at him? Was it that thing of like, killing off the heroes of the past i wonder katie if because towards the end there is when he is bloated and he is by that stage pretty cheesy he almost looks like a parody of beautiful 1950s elvis doesn't he he doesn't seem to be the same man i wonder if it's partly that because if you remember that elvis then he is almost a figure of fun yeah rather than the beautiful elvis but there are so many I mean, you must have seen Elvis impersonators. You must have seen Elvis tribute acts. I even think, like, clearly there are tribute acts for all the great musicians and the great bands. But I remember seeing, this is quite random, I remember seeing a Mexican. Oh, yeah, Elvis. Elvis. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. That's almost how big Elvis is, that he yeah. has specific, country-specific yeah. impersonators. And also uh, impersonators for every... 
era. aspect, every era. Yeah. So like the the leather clad '68 comeback special, the 1956 beautiful rockabilly Elvis and fat jumpsuit Elvis, and I mean, of course, that's like anything nowadays. You know, you can go back into music of our childhood and find it all equally delicious, whether it's chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap, or, you know, riders on the storm by the doors. Like it's all plausible and fine and nutritious. Um, But it does seem, I do remember being a teenager and thinking, oh man, he is so cornball. And I guess at the time it was the beginning of punk rock and, uh, you know, for me, you know, the excitement coming out of New York City and the underground, all of that kind of thing. But um, Billy Joel would be sued for malpractice. <laughs> and we would be suing him. We would be the first names in the courtroom. <laughs> if he didn't include Elvis Presley and we didn't start the fire. I mean, you, you cannot. Uh, I mean, he is just uh, he's a Mount Rushmore uh, of one one head, not four heads of four different presidents. He's four different Elvises. Four different Elvises. There you go. Four different Elvises. Yeah, and we always ask about legacy on this show, Katie, and it's a redundant question because we are still living with the legacy of Elvis. But there's a little twist on that that I've just thought about, which is, okay, so there is probably no Beatles without Elvis. There's a lot of bands who start because of Elvis. Bob Dylan is inspired by Elvis. All that whole generation were. But the weird thing for me is that you will still have bands who base themselves on one of the Beatles templates. But I don't know how many current musicians there are who actually base themselves on Elvis, on his music. Do you know what I mean? Or is that unfair? Is Elvis's influence so vast that it has just percolated through everything and we don't need to see deliberate homages to him? He's just there in the fabric of society. That's a really good point. Um, I think that stylistically... You see him all the time, like certainly throughout punk rock, you'd see Elvis looking people with the quiff and everything. But musically, I think he was just really in that primordial soup of uh, proto rock and roll. It just would be a little bit too raw to use Sally's word to keep to keep going back to that. It would almost seem a little theatrical, a little bit like putting on your costume to reenact something from the past. So I think that's another thing that keeps him so singular and so removed and so iconic is that he hasn't been deleted because it's not, you know, he still owns that sound. Yeah, I think you're right, Casey. Well, if you have enjoyed this deep dive into the life of a rock and roll legend as much as Katie and I have, we've got another great podcast to recommend to you. It is called Death of a Rockstar, and it is storytelling at its most immersive. These are the stories of the music stars who we lost too soon, the ones who rocked our stages and shook our stereos. Go and check out the episodes on Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, and John Lennon. You know, when you're talking about uh, rock stars, I'm thinking about our our career, our little sideline, our side hustle, uh, which is building up nicely, all inspired by the conversations that we've had throughout all of these different episodes of We Didn't Start the Fire. So Monkey Death Ship, mm. that came out of the uh, polio vaccine episode, yeah. and that's our death metal band. Yeah. Um, Quantum Entanglement, that came out of our <laughs> Einstein episode. It did, yeah. And that's our prog band. Yep. Uh, what else? Damp Cloth Utopia, which came out of our, our Dacron. Now, I don't know if that's just a, I don't know what that is. Is that like a, a the second album of our 
of our prog band? I think it's more it's more the sort of chill out style where the songs all merge into each other. Basically, if you get back to your flat at two in the morning, you stick on Damp Cloth Utopia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's more ambient. That's more ambient. Okay, supine chin strokers. I can't remember. <laughs> that's our that's our indie act. But I would... That was an email exchange between us, Katie, that produced <laughs> supine chin strokers. But that is our indie band. That Now we're getting into our, like, our intimate secrets, our intimate life. And so today, after talking to <laughs> Sally about uh, Elvis's taking care of business oath that he included at the end, like, like a little prayer that he's sending up, <laughs> freedom from constipation. So I'm wondering, is this a new musical genre for us? Or, or <laughs> how, how are we incorporating the slogan, freedom from constipation? I, I would like to see it as a lapel badge, first of all, Katie. And then I think it will take on a life of its own. People will chant it at our gigs oh. as they're waiting for the encore. So we've done the main set. We've disappeared off into the wings. Yeah. Quick refresher. And we can just hear people stamping their feet, clapping their hands and chanting... Freedom from constipation. It is a little hard. It, it is a little bit of a mouthful, freedom from constipation in every sense of the word. But it is an admirable sentiment. Yeah. And maybe, Katie, in the gigs, it will be reduced to a simple FFC. 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 I like it. I like it. Also, you guys, if you want to follow us on the socials, you can do so at Spread That Fire. And also, if you feel compelled to put digits to keys and send us some lovely thoughts about anything you want to share about upcoming episodes or perhaps uh, weigh in on our musical genres, you can get in touch via fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Next week, Katie, we are going to a very special place. We're going to... Disneyland! Yay! Crowd Network, a place where you belong. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.